And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in his mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for the good work, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We get together today in this place to worship our God for who he is and for what he has done. But the only way that we can actually know who our God is and what he's done is in through his word. So I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and open them up to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the seats in front of you. And uh, if you do not have a Bible at home, but would like one, you can take one of those Bibles. It's our, it's our gift to you. But we're going to be in the book of Ephesians. It's there in the New Testament. And, uh, and I hope while I keep talking, you'll find your way there. Uh, anybody here ever been to Mexico City? Anybody here ever been to Mexico City? Okay, a few people. Uh, I've never been, but I do hear that there is something that if you go to Mexico City is actually worth seeing. I've seen a picture of it, and today you'll get to see the picture of it too. In the National Palace in Mexico City, there is a mural that spans over a course of a number of walls in the grand staircase at the National Palace. Here's a picture of the mural. This is, this is a condensed picture, so it's been spliced together. It really doesn't do it justice because the mural would span from the corner of that wall all the way around probably to the corner of that wall. And uh, it was painted by uh, Domingo Rivera, and uh, he painted it in 1931. He was commissioned to paint it as a uh, retelling of Mexico's history uh, in picture form. And that's what a lot of murals actually are. They, they tell a story, they, they tell a history, and it's, it's a little uh, jumbled the way that it's been put up here on the wall, but um, actually there are some parts of it missing because I know the full picture. Uh, it goes all the way from which it would basically be like the creation of the world all to present day uh, Mexico in 19. Uh, 30, 31. It's really a, a spectacular thing uh, to see. The interesting thing about it is uh, that the history that is retold there by uh, Rivera, uh, he was a Marxist, so he's got that going against him, uh, but he inserted some of those things into, into the history. So there is a perspective to this. But I share that mural with you because as you look at that mural and you see the history of Mexico in the mural, in Ephesians chapter 2, we have here what I call a verbal mural. 
All right, try saying that five times fast. Don't, don't say it five times. A verbal mural. What I mean by that is to understand Ephesians 2, what you have to understand is that it's the Apostle Paul inspired by God communicating to Christians a picture of their lives, the entirety of their lives from their past into their present and then ultimately into their future. And so as you read Ephesians chapter 2, you're really reading this verbal mural, God using words to paint a picture for us of our history as his, his people. And it begins here in verse 1 where Paul talks about our past. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 starting in verse 1. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We know right away that what is being told about us here takes place in the past tense. It's something that takes place in the past. And what Paul says here to us is if you want to understand your past, what is the, the picture that we see in our verbal mural? It's this. We were cut off from God, living our own way and condemned. What is in all of our past? What's the picture that would represent all of our past? This is the picture in these three verses. Cut off from God, living our own way and condemned. And we know that we're cut off from God because he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That phrase, and you were dead, is Paul hearkening back to the very first pages of the Bible when Adam and Eve sinned and disobeyed God. And God said, in the day that you sin against me, the day that you disobey, you will surely die. They didn't cease existing. Humanity didn't cease to exist. Instead, the opposite of death is living. And so when he said you were dead in your trespasses and sins, he's not saying you ceased to exist. He's saying you weren't living any longer in a specific way. You weren't living the life you were created to live. And the life we were created to live, church, was a life where we were in relationship with God, following God's ways. And so that's why I say what's in our past? We were cut off from God. We were living life our own way. But just as proof that we weren't actually dead, but we were actually still active in our death being cut off from God. He says, look, you followed the course of this world. You followed Satan's lead. You did what your desires wanted. And so while we were dead to God, cut off from him, we were living, but we were living life our way. We followed the world's way of thinking. We followed Satan's leadership. We bought into to his lives. In fact, all of humanity, if you, if you don't have God, any longer speaking his truth. If you are no longer receptive to God's truth, you're going to seek some other understanding. And Satan fills that vacuum. In fact, I didn't say this as an example of it, but you know, Satan, we talked last week, is the father of lies and he's the destroyer. Where do the false religions of the world come from? Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, any other form of religion, even the, even the Christian cults that exist? That's Satan at work. That's Satan taking a truth. See, Satan knows that we're made to worship. Satan knows that, that we're longing for purpose and for me. And so in the absence of God, we substitute something else. And what we substitute here are these false religions. And so we see examples of our lives when we're cut off from, from God. 
In theological terms, Paul's actually describing something here that theologians call, and I think this is important for us as a church to know this term, total depravity. Have you ever heard that, that word before, total depravity? It's a really important term because what it's doing is it's describing the human condition apart from, from God. And, and a lot of people don't fully understand what total depravity is, although Paul spells it out here. Total depravity, the, the way that I could summarize it, the way that theologians summarize it, could simply be this. Every part of us, the picture that the verbal mural paints in God's word of our past is this. Every part of us has been corrupted by sin. We're unable to submit to God or to reform ourselves. That is to take ourselves out of our position. When we say that the Bible teaches that we are totally depraved, it's saying there's none righteous, no, not one. In fact, Paul's not the first person to say it. The psalmist in Psalm 14:2 said this. Listen to these words. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. And what does it say? Verse 3. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even, guess what? One. The picture that the scriptures paint of our condition is one in which we don't submit to God, we stand condemned, we, we cannot save ourselves. And so it, we are totally depraved. Or I think maybe a better way to say it is, is say that humanity has experienced radical corruption from top to bottom. This is our problem, being cut off from God. But let me just say two things because sometimes people misunderstand it. When we talk about total depravity, the Bible doesn't say that we are all as wicked as we could possibly be. Right, you know what I mean by that? Like to say that humanity is totally depraved doesn't mean that we're utterly depraved. It doesn't mean that at any given moment we're all as wicked as we could possibly be doing wicked deeds. Like you're all sitting down right now looking at me. We're not attacking and killing one another, right? Every single moment of, of the day, people according to God's word, there is a restraint that God has in the world by his common grace, through the governments that he's instituted, through family structures, God has put in place those things that restrain the wickedness of man. So we're not as wicked as we could possibly be all the time. He's even given us consciences that, that still have some restraint. But nonetheless, make no mistake, we are still in desperate need of rescue. The other thing about total depravity, it doesn't mean that human beings aren't capable of good. Because even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, going our own way and condemned, human beings, apart from God, are still able to do things that are good. We, we see this in the way that mothers who are not saved care for their, their children. We see the way that a neighbor who is not ultimately transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ, still can do good things for others. But at the end of the day, the Bible says that even in the goodness that is displayed, well, all of our good deeds are as filthy rags because they're not from a place of ultimately righteousness. So we got to be clear, church. We got to say what the Bible says about humanity. We had a problem in our past. And you know why this is important? Two reasons, one of which I mentioned last week that I wanna state again. But first, let me tell you this. Part of the reason why I am so drawn to the truth and the validity of what God's word says 
as though it needs my opinion to matter, is because of the doctrine of total depravity. Because apart from the doctrine of total depravity, apart from the understanding that man is corrupt and sinful and that man needs saving, when I look out at the world, this makes sense of things. Apart from total depravity, you and I have to come up with some other rationale as to why people are the way that they are. Yet the Bible says, when you see people acting the way that they act, it's because they're cut off from God. It's because they've forsaken His ways. It's because they've gone their own way. I'm drawn to the truthfulness of this book because I believe it accurately describes the human condition. And because it does, as a Christian then, as we said last week, this should impact us. It should impact us as Christians because if, if this is what the Bible says and it's true, if this is all of our pasts, if this is who we once were, then it makes sense that when we leave this place and we go out into the world, when we see people functioning in a way where they don't value the things of God, when we see people functioning in a way and treating other one another that, in a way that creates suffering and, and hardship, like church, we should never be surprised when we see the world functioning the way that God says the world will function apart from Him. And instead, that should create a, a grace in us and a mercy, not a condoning, not an accepting of things, but say, I know exactly why there are people in the Senate right now who are saying that we need to codify and put into law that marriage can be between people of the same gender. Like that doesn't surprise me. That's the road you go on when you are apart from God and apart from his ways. Like where does that thinking come from? And so we look at the world and we say, but for the grace of God, there would go I. And so we have a grace and a mercy towards the world, recognizing that they are lost. And, and listen, if this is true, and it is, can you and I change people? Are we strong enough? Are we powerful enough? If we cannot change ourselves, can we change others? No, we can't. But there is one who can. In fact, see, our past, our verbal mural, as Paul paints it here, it doesn't just include the fact that we were dead in our trespasses and sin. Yes, we were cut off from God. Yes, we were living life on our own terms. Yes, we were condemned. Yet look at verse 4. What does verse 4 start with? The most beautiful words in the Bible, but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, God, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, what might he do? He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, not of your own doing, it's the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may what? Boast. Beautifully described is our salvation in these verses. But God, when we were messing things up, when we ourselves were messed up, look at your past, he says, God entered in. But God, 
This is where we saw last week, and we're going to expand upon it today. God acted on our behalf and made us alive and gave us a new life. The beautiful truth that is found in this passage that we need to see and understand in its depth is this truth that God acted on our behalf and he made us alive and gave us a new life. These are two different things. Two very different things. He made us alive, verse 4 says, but he also seated us and raised us and, and gave us this new life with Christ. It wasn't just that the dead came to life. It's that the, those who are dead entered into royalty. You and I substituted the electric chair for thrones. The radical nature of our transformation wasn't just from death to life, as though that weren't radical enough. You and I have become those who inherit the riches and the glory as being sons and daughters of God. And why did this happen? But God. Now, last week, we took a quick look at these verses. Today, what I want to just consider really fast are just three, three things, three messages that I hear God speaking to us through these verses. Three things that, that we don't want to miss because of their implications for us as Christians. Like, why does God use the wording that he does and the repetition that he does in this passage? That's what we're going to look at. And the first thing that I want us to see is this. What do we see when we look at the verbal mural of our past? It's first and foremost, our salvation church is all God's doing. When you take these verses in totality, they are screaming as loud as they can. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. Our salvation is all God's doing. It is not of our own doing. In fact, the passage makes this clear in so many different ways. Look at these three statements that are made. But God made us alive. But God raised us up with Christ. But God seated us in the heavenly realms. Who is the one doing all the action in these verses and in these statements? Who raised us up? Who seated us? Who made us alive according to the text? God. God is the subject of all of this. He's the one doing all the work in this passage. And who's he doing it for? And who's he doing it to? He's doing it to us. We're the recipients of what God is, is doing. As I was looking at this this week, I thought, there's not a, a hint, there's not a suggestion that you or I had anything in any way, shape, or form to do with being delivered from death and judgment and enslavement to the flesh, the world, and the devil. Instead, these verses scream as loudly as possible. This is all of God's doing. And unless we think that we contribute anything to our salvation, you get down to verse 8. And look at what verse 8 says. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your what? Own doing. It's not who's doing? Our doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of what? Works, which would mean our doing, so that no one may boast. Paul comes here, and it 
and it's pretty plain in the English translation, but it's all the more profound in the Greek that Paul is making the emphasis here that your salvation and my salvation is all God's doing. Because I'd ask you a question, looking at this verse with me, it says, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. I wonder when you read that, church, what's being referred to there? This is not your own doing. What's the this referring to? What is the gift of God? Because if you understand what the this is and what the gift is, in the Greek it makes it all the more clear that it's all of God and none of us. And let me tell you how we know this. You see, in the Greek, the this is a pronoun and it's in the neuter. And you're like, what does that matter? I'm going to get there. Grace and faith are both in the feminine. And normally what happens in Greek is the modifying pronoun of the noun will match the gender that it's describing. So technically, if grace and faith are the this and the gift of God, they should be in the same gender. But instead, Paul, inspired by God, gave us a, a neuter pronoun. And you're like, why does this matter? I'll tell you why it matters. Because what Paul, being the man of God that he is, and not being someone who lacked an intelligence, by making that a neuter pronoun, rather than having it match the gender of anything else in that phrase, is telling us that the entire clause, everything that's being described there, is the gift. So salvation as a whole and grace and faith are also gifts. There's not one thing in that clause that is not a gift from God. So your salvation as a whole is a gift and grace and faith are also gifts. So what are you contributing to your salvation? Absolutely nothing. It's all God's doing. See, often people mistake faith as something that we bring to our salvation. So God gives us the grace, and then ultimately we put our faith in Him. But I want to be clear on something. Both grace and faith are a gift. Do you know why? You see, I had a conversation, and I've discovered that many pastors have had this conversation, where they're talking with somebody and they're sharing the gospel with them. I remember one man in particular, as we were talking, he said, you know what, I just... I can't believe. I, I wish I could believe, but, but, I, but I just, I can't. I don't have that kind of faith. And when the gentleman was talking with me, I tried to help him to see something, something that's true. You see, just because you don't have faith in Jesus Christ doesn't mean that you lack faith. Did you know that? Every single human being that exists and lives has faith. We function every day with faith. The Bible is clear that if our faith isn't in Jesus Christ, our faith is in something else. We are believing and we are trusting and we are looking to something else than God. That's why he says, your faith is a gift of God. Because what God does in his grace to you is he redirects your faith because you can't do it on your own. From trusting in the things of this world for your salvation to ultimately trusting in God. Faith 
is a gift. When you exercise your belief and your faith, that is God making that reality possible. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Yes, you have to believe, but that belief, it is a gift of God. It's a gift of God. I, I didn't get saved because I conjured up the ability to believe. I believed because I was given the gift of faith to believe. You know, there's a passage that I think really shows us this. This is in Acts. In the book of Acts, we come to Acts 18.27. And here's the author, Luke, writing. He said, And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace, what? Believed. It was through grace that they ultimately believed. I'm just sharing all this with you because, listen, church, I just want us to see. It's all God's doing. Anybody here ever been sailing before? Anybody sailed? We got a beautiful place to sail. I, 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 love, I love to sail. But I love to sail when the wind is working, uh, <laughs> when the wind's actually blowing. You know, you look at a sailboat, and I want you to think about grace and faith in, in this way. Um, when you look at a sailboat, you know, as it sits there in the water, the only way that the, the sailboat can move is if the wind is blowing, and ultimately if there's a, a sail to catch the wind. Theologians talk about the material cause and the instrumental cause of our salvation. Grace comes to us. It's, it's like the wind. It's the material cause. It's the thing that moves us ultimately towards, towards God. It's, it's the sails that are ultimately are the thing that, that catch the wind. They're the instrument, if you will, that pushes, pushes the boat along. And so how do we experience salvation? Grace comes to us. It manifests itself through our belief in Jesus Christ. But all of those things are a gift. Why does this matter? Why do we need to see this and believe this? Well, he tells us in verse 9. Do you see it there at the end of verse 9, why this is so important? He says, ultimately... This is not a result of works so that no one may, what, boast. Why? Why sh should we understand this? So we don't boast, so we don't take the credit for our salvation in any way, shape, or form, but instead are a people who are continually giving praise back to God. It's, it's that knowledge that humbles us before one another. It's that knowledge that humbles us before God, as I said earlier, <laughs> but for the grace of God, there go I. If you or I here could contribute something to our being brought from death to life, it would give us a leg up on other people at minimum. It would give us opportunity for boasting. And Paul says, none can boast because you didn't contribute anything to it. It was all God's doing. This past, I'd say the last two weeks, uh, one of my daughters, Addie, um, she had gotten this paint-by-numbers kits. Have you ever seen these paint-by-number kits? And when you first see it, I'm like, what is that? It looks like nothing. And then she's been filling it in. She's been painting it. And so here's what it is. It's a, it's a painting of a dog. Um, and, you know, you, you fill in the numbers and you paint. And it's been turning out really, really well. Um, now, if I said that I contributed to this painting, you know, it, you'd say, oh, okay, that, that's nice. But, but what if I said... I contributed to this painting by taking her paintbrush, dipping it in the black, and just putting one dot right there. 
would you say that I really contributed to it? You look at me and say, you didn't contribute anything. What are you, what are you, what are you talking about? Well, if it's as, just as ridiculous for you to think that I contributed something by putting a, a little black dot on this painting, Paul says, you didn't even pick up the paintbrush. You didn't even dip it in the thing. You didn't even touch your salvation in any single way. It's as ridiculous to think that we contributed to our salvation as much as it would be looking at this painting if I told you that I put a little black dot on there. There's no boasting. In this situation, Addie gets all the credit. Actually, the person who did the numbers, then never mind, it's a whole other thing. <laughs> they said, church, it's all God's doing. There's no boasting when we realize this, but there's one other thing. This distinguishes Christianity from every other religion in the world. Did you know that? Any other religion in the world, whatever their salvation is, whatever their concept of it is, whether it's a nirvana, whether it's enlightenment, whether it's a, a unity with the whole, Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism, the cults that exist, every single one outside of Christianity says, you must do these things in order to obtain. Christianity is the only one, test me on it, that says, it's all his doing, it's all a gift. And so it should create within us to be the most humble of people. So when we read this passage, when we look at the verbal mural of our salvation, we learn it's all of his own doing, but there's something else. There's something else that this reveals and it's so meaningful and so important. I wonder, how would you know what someone's like? How do you know what somebody is really like? How would you test it? How would you try and figure out their character? I think the easiest way is to simply just watch and to see what they do, right? Their actions often define them. Your actions and my actions help to define us. And sometimes that takes a long time to actually get to know. In fact, a professor at the University of Kansas, a man by the name of Jeffrey Hall, just two years ago, did a study of 500 students at the University of Kansas trying to discover how long it actually takes to become someone's good friend. How long does it take to become somebody's good friend, to really get to know them, to watch them, to observe them, to enter into a relationship with them? Here's what he discovered. So if you want to make a new friend, here's what's in store for you, all right? It takes about 40 to 60 hours around a person to form a casual friendship, 40 to 60 hours. It takes 80 to 100 hours to become a friend. So, so if you spend like 80 to 100 hours with somebody, you know, and it's not a forced interaction, you're, you're entering into the friendship zone. It takes over 200 plus hours with somebody to be actually considered a good friend. So to really know somebody, to, to have that intimate knowledge of who they are and, and, to, and to be connected with them, it takes 200 plus hours. Now, I find it striking that when we come to this passage, it goes out of its way to make sure that when we look back at our salvation and what God does to make us alive, not only does it reveal to us that it's not our own doing, but because it's all of God's doing, as we look at this text, we discover it reveals God's very character and nature to us. You want to know what God is like Look no further than the verbal mural of our salvation and you'll discover the very character and the very nature 
of, of God. Look at all the things we are told about God because of what he does in our salvation. Number one, he says in verse four, but God being rich in what? Mercy. But God being rich in mercy, the first thing that is revealed to us of God's character and nature is that he is merciful, showing favor to those who deserve the precise opposite. One man had written, if nothing but a proper code of rewards and retribution were followed, sinners would receive God's wrath. But we do not. Because God doesn't reward us according to what we actually deserve. He shows mercy. He holds back his wrath and instead he saves. You want to know what God's like? He is merciful. I was talking to my daughter the other day, and I was actually using this as an illustration for something else, and so you'll probably hear it again, but um, we were talking about mercy and, and grace and those things, and I said, can you imagine if I told you, um, Cece, don't put your Legos outside, don't ever take them outside, because our dog is out there, and the elements are out there, and so it'll chew it up, or the wind will knock it over and break it. Now imagine if she takes her Legos outside and she leaves them there and she goes away and I walk past and I see the Legos outside and there I see Penny, our dog, coming up to the Legos. Now tell me, if I let Penny go ahead and start knocking down the Legos and chewing on them, would I be a bad person? I mean, I mean you'd be like, well, that's not very nice, she brought her. Did she obey me? Did I not tell her the consequences of what would happen if she brought the Legos outside? Now, I wouldn't be wrong to let things unfold the way that I said they would unfold, but I would be merciful if before the dog got there, I went out there and I stopped it, and then I brought the Legos inside. And I looked at my daughter and I said, I brought the Legos in for you. I would be showing her what? Mercy. She didn't. She disobeyed. If the Legos got destroyed, that was on her. But instead, what God does here is he gives the undeserving mercy. But not only does he give us mercy, look at, look at the affection he has for us. He says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great, what? Love with which he loved us. He not only shows us mercy, but in our salvation, he shows his affection expressed in care for us. There is a love that exists from God for us. He's merciful and he's loving. When he shows his mercy, he doesn't say, don't you see what I did for you? You know what you deserve? You didn't get it. He's not harsh, he's loving. And then he goes on and it doesn't just stop there. Verse five, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Merciful, loving, but these verses, this merciful, loving God, he is not weak. He is powerful to take us from death to life, to give us a throne instead of an electric chair. No one could do what God could do. Human beings, we're capable of many things. God is capable of doing all things. He is powerful. 
in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We're going to see this later in chapter 3. The resurrection from Jesus Christ from the dead was an act of God to display his power. Church, merciful, loving, powerful, these are all words that describe our God, but so too are two more words, and they're found in verses 7 and 8. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Church, gracious and kind are two more ways in which God reveals his character and his nature to us. Grace is giving the undeserving what they don't deserve, giving them the blessings that they should not receive. Us being raised and exalted is not just God simply being merciful. He doesn't just hold back his wrath. He goes above and beyond. And there's a kindness that's involved. Too often we think that God owes us something. Even after we become Christians, we often find ourselves thinking like this, certainly God owes everyone at least a chance, we say. Or when God fails to do something, we think, this just isn't fair. The truth is, every person receives exactly what it is they deserve. And when they don't receive it and get blessing instead, that's all of grace. So if you're here and you are someone who knows and believes in Jesus Christ as your Savior, that's all God's doing. And not only is it all God's doing, you are today a recipient of mercy, of grace, of kindness, of love, and the power of God. It's so important for us to be able to look back upon what brought us from death to life because when we look back and when we see these things, church, what we see is God's character on display. And I'm here to tell you it's so important to know what God's character and nature is like because of what he's done in your salvation because you're going to walk out these doors today. I'm going to walk out these doors and I'm going to walk into the week ahead. And there is potential for suffering, for disappointment, for disease and for sickness, for things to strike and to hit you in your life, things that can cause you to begin to question, is God good, is he loving, is he merciful, is he kind? We see it every day. As a church, we've been in a really unique season, in many ways kind of a, a sad season, where over the last two months, there have been a number of people in our church who have experienced death in their own family. Like, in, in a very unique way, more than is typically comes in a two-month period of time. I just, I'm just struck by how many of our church members have been impacted by the death of a loved one. And in the midst of that, as I've sat and I've talked with so many of them, something that has come out of it is, number one, a sadness and a grief that they're experiencing. But to a person, those who have lost loved ones in these past two months, one of the things that has really struck me so profoundly is how many of them have come literally to a person and said, I'm sad and I grieve, but I know my loved one knew Jesus Christ and is now united with Christ. And because of that, I know that while I'm sad and I'm grieving, I know that God loves our family and I know God is merciful and I know he's gracious because of the salvation through Jesus Christ that my loved one is now experiencing in full. Man, I tell you, when you sit with people that are in that position 
and you hear them as they're going through, even if the loss is still expected, when you see people say, I'm grieving, but I still have hope and I have peace because I know my God is loving and gracious, even though in this moment it doesn't feel that way, but I know he's loving and gracious because he saved my loved one. Church, this is why this matters. Because of what we go through in life, our salvation reveals truly what our God is like in his character and nature. But then as if that weren't enough, there's one final thing, and it's found here in verse 10. One of the most powerful things of all in this is found in verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, Paul says, created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared in advance that we should walk in them. That he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What he's doing here in this verse is something so profound, and we're going to see it in more detail as this book unfolds, so I'm not going to get into the fullness of it today. But here is the crazy thing that he does here. Number one, he addresses in the first few words here everything that he has said previously. When he says that we are his workmanship, Paul is putting the final stamp and seal on the fact that our salvation is all God's doing. Because just as an artist and a craftsman takes a piece of canvas or a marble slab or a piece of paper to create poetry, a statue, or a painting. And just as that canvas, that marble slab, that piece of paper has no business and has no ability to create the artwork out of itself, so Paul comes and says, when you look at your life and your salvation, you are his workmanship. He's the one that does, has done all the work to make you who you are today. He is the one who has brought you from death to life. He is the one who has created you to be who you are now. But he doesn't stop there. Look at what he says. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what church? Good works. The whole purpose of his recreation of us, of us, him drawing into relationship with him, is that in and through us now, good works would flow. We can actually live the life that we were created to live. Notice here, in the past he said, no one is saved by works. He just said that. Not by works that no one can boast. But now he comes and he says here, but now that you are saved, as you live out your Christian life, as you do good works, that's because of the salvation that has come to you. To put it simply this way, I said this, our salvation church is why we do good works. It's ultimately because of our salvation that we do good works and not just that we might do good works, not that we just have the potential for good works. Paul actually says, in your future and in my future are good works that you haven't even done yet. And when you do them, guess who gets all the glory? God gets all the glory. Your ability to do good in this world now is because you have been made new. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And before Paul said it, Jesus said it. <laughs> Jesus said in John 15, 8, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove yourself to be my disciples. As we bear fruit because our salvation has been made possible through Jesus Christ. It is to the glory of God, and it is a demonstration. You see, we don't do good works in order to be saved. That's what every religion in the world says. 
We do good works because we have been saved and God has created you and prepared good works for you to walk in them. What I think is so amazing about this is that when we see one another living out our new life in Jesus Christ, we're seeing God show off his power. When you do something to the praise and glory of God and I get to see it, I get to see, oh my goodness, that's Ephesians 2.10 being on display. What they just did there, that was a good work that God prepared for them to walk in. And God gets all the more glory and we get the edification. And so church, may we never be a people who overlook or don't consider rightly and seriously our salvation and what God has done. Because when we do, we see that it is what produces good works in us. When we do, we see God's character and nature on display, which we need, because as we go out in the world, we can call that into question. And when we do, it leaves no room for boasting, but only boasting in Him. And Lord, help us as we continue to reflect on what He has done. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, the sweetness of your word that's come to us this morning is a message, Lord, that for some of us, we've heard many times. But Lord, it's repeated over and over again, which tells me that our hearts need to hear it. It tells us, Lord, that we need to continually be looking back upon you and who we were and who we are now because of what you have done so that, Lord, may there never be boasting upon our lips except in Jesus Christ. That there would only be praise for you that, Lord, that on our lips would be encouragement and edification of, of one another because, Lord, as we walk in good works, we know that that is a, a powerful display of the salvation that has come to us and the fulfillment of your promises for us. And so then, Lord, as we engage the world around us, Father, we know that the only thing that can bring us from death to life is the gift of grace and faith and salvation that you would provide. And so, Lord... Help us to be a people who, who carry the message, who bring these truths to a world that so desperately needs it because we needed it first. So we pray and we ask this in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen, amen.